we doing any converts today? Not a one. Nay, nay, nay. We've flattened their fingers. We've branded their buns. Nothing is working. Send in the nuns. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. This lecture will be aimed first at patrons, though with their permission I may later post it on open forums outside of Patreon. And I want to discuss another myth of the month. So in my series of myths of the month, this next one will be on secularization. So secularization more or less refers to the idea of society becoming less religious over time, particularly modern societies as they come under the influence of science, technology, and bureaucratic management, they become less religious. Now, even as I say this, probably some of my listeners are already saying, oh, Sam, you're going to say, there is no religion, there's no modernity, what does that even mean? And yes, all of that is true, and I will get to that. But before we get into those weeds about etymologies and conceptual categories, I'm first going to actually address the sort of things people think of when they talk or write about secularization, and I'm going to take the subject seriously. And I will start taking the subject seriously by, of course, telling a joke. This is a joke some of you may have heard. It's circulated around, and it goes more or less like this. There are three clergymen say, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. And they get together to play golf, perhaps. And they discuss what they do in their different houses of worship when they get a big windfall of donations. Sometimes they give a really good sermon and the collection plate that week is just overflowing with cash. And what do they do with all that money? Do they keep some for themselves because they did such a good job? Or do they dedicate it all to God? And first the priest says, well, I have a system. When I get a huge windfall of cash, I just draw a circle around myself in chalk on the floor. And I take the cash and throw it up into the air. And whatever falls within the circle next to me, I keep for myself. And whatever falls outside the circle, I give to God. Then the minister says, well, I just go about it slightly differently. I draw a chalk circle around myself. I throw the cash in the air. And whatever falls outside the circle, I keep for myself. And whatever falls inside the circle is dedicated to God. Then the two of them turn to the rabbi. And the rabbi says, well, my system's a bit simpler. I throw the cash up in the air. And whatever God wants to keep, he can keep. And whatever falls to the ground... I keep for myself. So what do we make of this joke? And why is it funny? Well, on the one hand, you can see the different characters as playing different roles. And in this case, the rabbi can be seen as standing in for Jews. And you might see the joke on the one hand as possibly anti-Semitic, in that it's saying that the Jew is stingy and keeps money for himself. On the other hand, 
it's funny in part because the rabbi is also the hero of the story. He's the one who's more smart and practical and is able to see the contradictions in the other two's actions. And what are those contradictions? Well, the rabbi seems to imply if you really believe in the sort of God that your religion teaches, a God who performs miracles, who is all-powerful, who intervenes in the world and makes judgments on people and events, then you ought to think that it's perfectly possible for God to simply take whatever money he wants. And hence this bizarre exercise of tossing money in the air and seeing what falls where should be pointless or unnecessary. And in this way, the rabbi in this joke is pointing out attention in how religion is practiced and taught in the modern world that all kinds of secularization theorists or scholars who subscribe to the idea of secularization have also pointed out over the years. How does one maintain belief in these doctrines about an all-powerful God while also going about one's business, conducting commerce, handling money, dealing with the law, and all of these realms of activity that seem to have written out or excluded the actual actions of God in things like judgments and miracles and signs. So there's a sort of, you might say, hollowing out, or as Weber has called it, a disenchantment that's happened in the world, even in religion, and that arguably makes religion somehow contradictory or out of place, incongruous in modern life. So what exactly did Weber say? You might remember I mentioned Weber in my big lecture on the myths we make. He's a very, very influential founding sociologist and historian of the early 1900s in Germany. And in his work, Weber argued that the world had transformed from various sorts of tribal or patrimonial traditional societies into an essentially different modern world. And that even if certain things like Christianity persisted, they were fundamentally different and operated differently in this modern, rationalized, bureaucratic world. And in a series of lectures in 1917 called Wissenschaft als Beruf, or Science as a Profession, he argued that the world had experienced what he called Entzauberung, which really literally in German means unmagicking, but it's usually been translated into English as disenchantment or sometimes as demystification. And Weber basically argued that in a rationalized world, a world that was managed by large institutions using mathematics and science that sought to explain and control events, it was no longer possible to believe in hidden mysterious forces. Things like magic, spirits and ghosts, divination, and so on. Now, in these lectures, Weber didn't specifically address religion or belief in God or supernaturalism in general. Rather, he argued that science and mathematics had created what he called an ideological iron cage, Stahlhartes Gehäuse, a sort of imprisoning, rigid worldview 
in which everything was visible and explainable. And hence there was no space for spirit, both in the sense of invisible essences and also in the sense of emotion, individual, mental, and inward exploration. Rather, all of that had been banished out of public institutional life and into private life. So what we would call spirituality, emotion, all of that now had to take place internally or in private groups and associations. And hence, Weber argued, this explained the decline of public life, why far fewer people were interested in taking part in politics and public life and rather saw the meaning and essence of their life lying in private affairs and even personal affairs. This, in Weber's view, gave way then to value fragmentation, important questions that cannot be addressed by science or mathematics, like the meaning of life, what is truly valuable in life, what is right and wrong. All of these now fragmented into a million different views and opinions that could all be held privately and could be sort of set against one another. And he called this multiplication and fragmentation of views and ideals a new polytheism. So in his argument, just as the ancient Greeks had believed in various gods who could fight with one another and take sides in wars, so fundamental beliefs about life and about good and bad and right and wrong were now contending and fighting on a sort of endless field of battle. How did one adjudicate among these different opinions and views? Well, this comes down simply to arbitrary taste. There is no real rational or shared basis or set of criteria for deciding questions of good or bad or value. And hence, people are, in a sense, paralyzed. They have no way to make final judgments other than whim and arbitrary choice. So this is just a brief, very digested reflection on Weber's arguments, which of course are much more complex and subtle. This basic line of argument, which he put forward in these lectures at the Munich University in 1917 during the, the enormous destruction of World War I, they reflect the feeling of that moment in many ways, the idea that science, technology, rational institutions had failed humankind and had led to this horrible mass slaughter. Nonetheless, they have been taken up and used and reapplied over the 101 years since in various different ways and have been reshaped into what people sometimes call now the secularization thesis. The idea that these markers of modernity lead not only to a decline in belief in magic, but to a decline in belief of all so-called supernatural phenomena, including religion. So the more people are exposed to the arguments of science, to the power of technology, to the power of modern institutions, the less they adhere to beliefs in religion, God, the immortal soul, the afterlife, and all of these sort of core doctrines of Western religion or of, of real religion all over the world, as it's, as it's commonly understood. 
So what are the problems with extending Weber's argument in this way into an overall secularization thesis? Well, many people have pointed out some of the pitfalls. For one thing, this line of thinking that modernity, science, technology, bureaucratic government leads to a decline in religion is that it overlooks the existence of so-called natural religion or rational religion. So going all the way back to the 1600s, really, to the Royal Society, Newton, and up through the 17 and 1800s, there have been many people who embraced and promoted what they considered to be religion without supernaturalism or spiritualism. Belief in God as a kind of rational creator, okay? One common strain of this rational religion is deism, the notion that a creator God shaped the world to obey certain regular laws and patterns, but does not intervene and create miracles. There are no spirits, no witches or goblins. There is no magic. Rather, there is a rationally ordered world that follows the template set forward by its rational creator. So this is just one form of, of rational or natural religion that has had many adherents over the past several centuries. And it really has roots earlier in the, the Catholic and Protestant Reformations that also sought to cast out what they considered to be obscurantist or superstitious elements out of Christian practice. And those movements for reform, of course, used the Bible as important measures of correct teachings, and really, hence, they have their roots even further back in ancient Judaism and in the Hebrew Bible's condemnation of magical practices like divination, revival of the dead, and so forth. Uh, they condemn a spirit conjuring, sacrifices, human sacrifice. So all sorts of practices that modern people, whether in the 16 and 1700s or today, might consider to be superstitious, were already condemned within Jewish and Christian traditions. And there already have been many efforts through the centuries to cast out and, in a sense, demystify and disenchant Jewish and Christian practices. The Protestant Reformation more specifically also rejected what they considered to be Catholic superstition and magic, things like the doctrine of transubstantiation, also the idea that certain people or times or places are more holy than others. They rejected the practice of monastic vows, the observance of Lent, Many Protestants, such as English Puritans, also suppressed the observation of Christmas and of quasi-pagan holidays like May Day. They also discouraged and cast out prayers to saints, okay, images and venerations of saints. And these sorts of ideas, although they weren't necessarily as strictly uh, propounded, they also were found in Catholic reformers predating Luther, like Erasmus who also urged a refocus on faith, on correct understanding of the scriptures, of salvation by grace. So, if we do accept Weber's argument that there has been a disenchantment or demystification of the world since the beginning of the modern era, the roots of it are not in science. They predate science. 
they go back into these deep inner disputes over correct Jewish and Christian teachings and practices, both in the ancient world and in the modern world. It's, it really began as a question of the proper observance of religion, rather than a question of religion versus science. This sort of dispute of religion as against science really only comes up in the 19th century, and I'll maybe touch on that a little later. So in this light, we can look at all kinds of Jewish and Christian practices and ask, what do they represent and how are they to be understood? And in many respects, even people who practice these rituals like prayer don't necessarily see them as supernatural in the way that a, an atheist or a secular-minded person might see them. The object of prayer, is it to call on a deity to give you something that you want in the way that you do in, say, a sacrifice in a temple? Or is it more a kind of meditative practice? There are many religious people today who argue, well, prayer really is about aligning your will with God's or bringing yourself closer to God. And that may be more or less true for more or fewer people, and you might be skeptical of it, but these sorts of questions about what are you achieving in prayer, and is it a kind of magic, a kind of invocation, those debates have been going on within these religions for hundreds of years. Now, another empirical reason to question and possibly doubt this secularization thesis is that religion in many ways and in many contexts really does not seem to be declining. We can say, okay, countries like the United States or Germany have secular law codes that don't make reference to God. The U.S. Constitution makes no reference to God. It makes no reference to religion except to say that uh, there, there shall be free exercise of religion and no established religion. And we can say there are all these institutions like universities, corporations, unions, and so on that are ostensibly secular. But at the same time, that doesn't seem to mean that people are any less religious. Or at least we can say that that seems to hold true through Weber's time, at least up to the 1970s. People in the U.S., which is arguably the most modern state in many ways, the most secular in its laws and government, the most commercial, the most mass media saturated, people have very high rates of religious adherence in the United States. Most people profess belief in a god, in some sort of religion. Large portions belong to houses of worship that they attend regularly. There have been many revivals and awakenings of religion and one one actually began in the 1970s and and 1980s the evangelical especially evangelical megachurch movement has really flourished and really if we say that there's some decline in religious adherence which certainly has happened in recent years it didn't really start in Europe until the 1960s, and in the U.S., not really until the 1990s, if then. It's very dicey exactly how you measure this. Again, because in the U.S. case, it's very hard to measure because the government doesn't ask people about their religious beliefs or practices. 
that is considered unconstitutional. If there's a separation of church and state, you leave people's religious convictions and practices private. So ironically, it's hard to say exactly what the levels of religious adherence are, but clearly in the U.S. they continue to be high, and any decline that's happened has only been in about the 20, past 25 years. In Europe, maybe it's happened for a bit longer, since about the 1960s, but still, that's more than 300 years after the onset of the scientific revolution, it's more than 150 years after the French Revolution. It really seems as if religion has persisted with remarkable strength and success through centuries of modernity. In addition, there are many people who clearly embrace modern ideas, including science, while also remaining religious. They're, empirically, there doesn't seem to be any mutually exclusive situation here. In the United States, most people who subscribe to important scientific theories like evolution by natural selection also profess belief in God and associate with some religion. And historically, we know that important early scientists like Galileo were fervently religious. Part of why Galileo got in trouble was because he was determined to convince the Catholic Church to change their teachings to conform with, with what he believed was correct knowledge about the cosmos. So he was very invested and cared very much in the teachings of the Catholic Church. He had a daughter who was a nun, which was not unusual. And in more modern times, we can see Many scientists profess religious belief at not much lower rates than the general public. Uh, the head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, famously is a devout evangelical Christian. And many people find all sorts of ways of either compartmentalizing or reconciling religious beliefs with science. For all of these reasons, scholars in recent years, especially in the past 20 years, have had to in some way adjust or revise exactly what they mean by secularization, since it seems as if we just, if we just take the naive surface sense that modern life leads to a decline of religion or leads people to be less religious, it doesn't seem to hold up. But nonetheless, people still seem to agree that some kind of secularization has happened, that we are living in a more secular time today than 200 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, when it seems in retrospect as if religion suffused all aspects of life. And today, as I have said, all kinds of institutions, spheres of activity seem to be devoid of religion. So something has changed. And this is the problem that the philosopher, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, takes up in his massive book, A Secular Age, which was published in 2007 and has become, in a sense, the sort of updated restatement of the secularization thesis. So Taylor says there is a consensus that secularization has happened in some way. But in order to examine exactly what has changed and how, we have to distinguish three different possible meanings of secularization, three different versions of the process. 
and consider them separately. So he says there are three different things we can mean by secularization. One, the public square has been stripped of religion. Right? Public debate, law, media seem to ignore religion. It's been drained out and put into a private sphere. And this, of course, has some roots in Weber. Two, people have become less religiously observant or believing. Faithful, you could say. And three, religious views are relative. They're open to doubt, to questioning, to change. People, even if they are religious and choose to believe, they have to do so in a critical, informed way, knowing that it is a valid and available option to not be religious. So this is the particular sense of secularization that Charles Taylor is most interested in and that he's trying to trace and argue for in his book, A Secular Age. And he says that previously, especially in the Middle Ages, religious belief could be naive or taken for granted. In his view, it was simply inconceivable not to believe in and participate in religion, which was such a fundamentally structuring idea and view of the world that shaped society. Whereas today, people cannot be naively religious. They have to know that religious claims are up for contestation and change. So being religious today, in Charles Taylor's view, is different from being religious in previous centuries. And this is what he thinks has led us into this secular age as we know it today. Other scholars have put forward very similar new interpretations of secularization that are pretty much in line with Taylor's. So the sociologist Peter Berger, who also is a very deeply influential thinker in terms of modern moral philosophy, social theory, religious studies. He argues that what we have today is not so much secular, secularism as it is pluralism. People are free to choose to affiliate with different religious groups. They're free to take up or reject or revise different religious views and doctrines. There is no longer such a clear orthodoxy, but in, B in Berger's argument, this does not mean people are not religious anymore. Rather, people float around, they go from place to place. And I'll, I'll go back to some of these ideas that Peter Berger puts forth uh, later. In the same sort of vein, Brad Gregory of Notre Dame, who is a committed Catholic and who left his tenured position at Stanford in order to go to the Catholic University at Notre Dame, he also argues that disenchantment is the wrong way of seeing the change over to a modern, more secular society. He points out that the Protestant Reformation did not actually disenchant the world. It might have rejected various sort of miraculous ideas like transubstantiation, but it still made heavy reference to the idea of divine providence and the notion that events in the world were reflections of God's will and God's foreknowledge. Protestant thinkers also for a long time made references to miracles, to the works of Satan, and to witchcraft. And in all of these ways, the gateways to modernity, whether it was the Reformation, the so-called scientific revolution, the so-called Enlightenment, none of these things actually really disenchanted the world. 
that didn't really happen. Rather, what did happen is that a great variety, a plethora of different contending ideas and new religious schools burst onto the scene and couldn't settle their conflicts and debates. And rather, as basically as I argued in my lecture about the general crisis of the 17th century, they had to learn to coexist. And they found that if they could coexist and stay out of each other's way, then they could do things like trade and colonize and make money. And so what really has happened is not a secularization, but a pluralization of the world. And like other scholars, he argues for the importance of the Dutch, of the Netherlands, as a kind of proving ground of this coexistence of different religious views, allowing for a lot of trade and money. The Netherlands, in this view, was the first place where religion became a private and internal belief, rather than a matter of public dispute. And there actually is an anecdote from my own advisor, Evan Hafeley's researches into New Netherlands, the colony that became New York, where he found that a group of Quakers who had settled in New Netherlands and had been promised religious freedom were now outraged and frustrated when they weren't allowed to meet and hold their Quaker worship services. And one of them, because New Amsterdam was just a small village at this time, one of them was able to find and corner the governor, Peter Stuyvesant, on the street and demand, where is our freedom of conscience that you promised us? And Stuyvesant reportedly pounded his fist on his chest and said, the freedom of conscience is in here. So he was basically saying, yes, you have religious freedom as long as it's internal as long as you're not doing these public things, like preaching, holding worship services, and so on. So this particular story seems to fit in the overall narrative that Brad Gregory is trying to put forward, that the explosion of different ideas and disputes that came out of the Reformation led to a kind of de facto secularism, but a secularism in the form of pluralism. And that sort of pluralism slash secularism has continued down to today. So it seems as if if we accept this sort of new sense of what secularism means, that then we maybe have a notion, a definition of secularization that can hold true and that can hold up to the test of the evidence. And in this sense, we can say we live in a more secular age. Now, before we test whether or not this sense of secularism holds water, I'm going to go back and look again at Charles Taylor's three senses of secularization and see what we think of each one and how we can examine each one. And those three are, to, to reiterate them, one, the public square has been stripped of religion. Two, people have become less religiously observant or faithful. And three, religious views have become relative and changeable in a pluralistic environment. Let's examine first the second one. So I'm going to start with the second one, which is one that Taylor himself is more skeptical of, but that many people have argued for, and that often to, to many people in the modern world seems to be self-evidently true, 
that more people don't believe in God, more people are atheist or religiously indifferent, and particularly that modern knowledge, like science, have reduced people's religious adherence. It's, it's more likely that you will be religiously skeptical if you are exposed to science and other new forms of knowledge and ideas. And one of the ideas that you'll often hear put forward and supported in different ways by scholars is the notion that more education leads to a decline in religiosity. As a person is more educated, they're exposed to science and technology and history. They're exposed to different ideas from different societies, different cultures. As they're exposed to more people in an educational institution who come from different backgrounds, that their commitment to any particular religious view diminishes. Well, this again is a difficult question to adjudicate precisely, again because it's not asked on censuses in the United States. And in some other countries like Britain, when it is asked on a census, a lot of people intentionally answer wrong or misleadingly because they don't believe it's right to ask people's private views. Nonetheless, there are research institutions such as Pew that have tried to trace out whether this actually is true. And in particular, Pew undertook a very large survey and analysis on this question, does religious adherence or belief decline with higher education last year in 2017? And the findings were very complicated. For one thing, there are different ways of measuring or ascertaining, is this person religious or not? It's a lot more complicated than asking, do you have a college degree or do you have an advanced degree? But all in all, we can say that the result was basically no. There's no particularly strong pattern showing that if you're more highly educated, you become less religious. For one thing, it is true that if you have higher le levels of education, a high school degree, a college degree, a postgraduate degree, then you are a bit less likely to say that religion is important in your life. You also are slightly less likely to say that you believe in God. Now, this should be qualified, and I'll probably get to that later. But when it comes to prayer, do you pray? There's no significant difference. And when it comes to church attendance, overall in the aggregate, there's no particular difference. Or I shouldn't say church attendance, but belonging to or attending a house of worship. It seems as if higher education doesn't make that any less likely overall. So the main change when you become more educated is that you become less likely to say religion is very important in your life. This does decline with education. Now, is this because you don't believe in religious teachings anymore or you don't participate in religion anymore? It doesn't seem so because those things either decline less or they don't decline at all as you become more educated. So rather, if we look into this question, is religion very important in your life? It's possible that more highly educated people less often say yes to that question because they're more likely to be wealthy and successful in life. 
And if you're less educated, you're more likely to be working class or poor, to be struggling, to have lower social status. And hence, religion might be more important in your life, not in the sense that you believe in it more, but in the sense that it's more of an important emotional support in your life. Or maybe it's even a more important community and social and material support in your life to have that religious community to help you through the difficulties of life. So this may call to mind, for example, Karl Marx's famous comment that religion is the opiate of the masses. This is, a, of course, a much quoted statement, and it often is taken to mean that Marx disdained religion and considered it to be a deception or debilitating. And that may be true, that may be part of what he meant, but if you look at the whole passage, it's also clear that he saw religion as an outlet for the frustrations, the hopes, the fears of poorer working people. And it was an opiate in the sense that it helped to make them feel better, and hence poorer people were more uh, reliant or more committed to it than wealthier people might be. So in this sense, this one question that does show a fairly large difference depending on your level of education, might not really be a good measure of religiosity at all. So let's think about the other questions that Pew asked that can be used as measures of religiosity. Do you believe in God? Do you pray? Do you belong to and attend a house of worship? Well, let's talk about belonging to a house of worship. Well, suppose we first narrow down the question and look specifically at Christians. So most Americans, and most Europeans for that matter, are Christian. In the U.S., it's about 70 or 71 percent of the population. So it's still the majority religion. And if we look at Christians specifically, there is no pattern at all that higher levels of education lead to being less religious in all of these measures. Rather, uh, over 50% of educated Christians say that they believe in God without any doubt and that they belong to and attend a house of worship. And that, secondly, on that last question, do you belong to and attend a house of worship, the rate is actually higher among more highly educated Christians. So if you identify as a Christian, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to belong to a church and attend a church, and the more likely you are to be affiliated with a Christian denomination. This has been corroborated in different ways by Gallup also, who found higher levels of congregation membership among more educated Christians as opposed to less educated. Why would this be so? Well, Part of why this might be is that, again, if you're more highly educated, you're more likely to belong to a slightly higher social class. You might be able to afford dues to belong to a religious organization. Also, Gallup found that more highly educated people tend to have higher opinions of the clergy and of organized religion. So they're more likely to say that clergy are good examples for moral behavior and to say that they trust or respect organized religion than less educated people. 
And this may be because, for one thing, clergy are themselves highly educated professionals. And so if you also are a highly educated professional, you might feel more affinity and more respect for people that you see as belonging to your own class. Whereas less educated people, who are more likely to be poor or working class, seem to be more skeptical about organized religion and about the clergy. So this is very true among Christians. It also seems to hold true to some degree among non-Christians as well and among the nuns, and I'll talk about them more later. This has also been shown similarly in Britain, so not just in the United States, but in Britain as well. After 1955, the pattern seems to be actually that the more educated a person is, the more religious they are across the board, whether that is attending church services or professing belief in God. There's actually a positive correlation between higher levels of education and higher levels of religiosity. Now, if we turn to this question of belief in God, in the United States at least, this is more complicated. So there is a difference where more highly educated people are a little bit less likely to say that they believe in God with absolute certainty. But it seems as if the rate for non-college educated people saying that they believe in God with absolute certainty is about 66%, so around two-thirds, among highly educated or at least college educated people, it's 55%. So it is lower. There's a statistically significant difference, but it's still a solid majority of both groups, both the more educated and less educated. Both tend to say that they believe in God with absolute certainty. So that's not as dramatic a decline as you might think if you believe that education leads to secularization. This can seem ironic when we consider that also more highly educated people consider themselves to be atheist or agnostic. So if we compare the least educated segment of the population, people who did not complete high school, it's about 4% who say that they're atheist or agnostic, whereas among college educated people, it's 11%. So it's definitely higher, but it's still only a small minority. Now, we can ask, okay, if in all of these ways, whether we're looking at the British case or we're looking at the question of church attendance and affiliation, if in all of these ways education does not seem to lead to lower levels of religiosity, then why is it that 11%, a larger portion of educated people, say that they're atheist or agnostic? Well, there are several possible reasons for this. One is that if you're college educated, you're more likely to know what those words mean and actually be able to say, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic, because you've been exposed to that vocabulary and to those ideas. Another is that many people on all parts of the spectrum of education might have religious doubts or might waver or question their religious views. But when you go through a college education or an advanced education, you are challenged and forced to account for your views and to argue for them or against them. And as a result, you become more entrenched in your views and you become more certain, whether that is you become more certain about your religious convictions or you become more certain about your non-religiosity, about being an atheist. And studies have actually found on a similar score, they found that more educated people are more politically partisan. 
so people are more absolutely certain of being liberal or conservative or democratic or republican if they're college educated than otherwise. And so the education process, while informing you and challenging your views, it actually tends to also make you more polarized and to affiliate more strongly with an ideological camp. And I would argue that the same thing is probably happening here with religious views. People are becoming more entrenched one way or the other, more than their religious views are declining. So I'll tell another joke on this, along these lines. This is a joke about Unitarians, and I'm sure any Unitarians listening will have a sense of humor about it. The joke is, why are Unitarian church choirs so bad? The answer is because they're always reading ahead to see if they agree with the lyrics. So this joke, I think, might capture something of how highly educated people approach religion. If they don't consider themselves to be atheist or agnostic, which some do, then they're likely to have some very clearly formed religious ideas. They're likely to join a religious group, but then even when in a religious group, they are very insistent and exacting about their own personal precise views and are very likely to disagree or dispute religious teachings that they don't like, that they don't agree with, that they don't see as aligning with their moral values or with scientific knowledge or their politics. And hence, but this does not deter them from still joining religious groups, engaging in religious conversations and calling themselves religious and saying that they believe in God. So it's just a more, you might say, highly informed and sometimes contentious mode of religiosity. But in these people's own words, it is still religion nonetheless. Now let's go back to what I mentioned earlier, that there seems to be a pattern difference between Christians and everybody else, at least in the United States. Why is it that among Christians specifically, education doesn't seem to lead to any significant decline in religious adherence? Well, this shouldn't be surprising when we consider the roots of the term religion, which I've talked about before. And specifically, I, I discussed this in my lecture on Judaism and why I don't think scholars should refer to Judaism as a religion. The term religion in the medieval world meant specific Christian groups like Benedictines or other vowed monastic groups, and it meant a structured and rule-based way of life that conforms with a certain Christian ideal. Later, it was broadened to mean Christianity more generally, or the various practices and ideas that are distinct to Christianity and that Christians might disagree or debate about. So, if we consider that the word religion in the English language comes out of this specifically Christian context, then basically if you call yourself a Christian, then almost by definition you are therefore religious. That's basically what the word religion means in practice. It means Christianity or things very similar to Christianity. So really logically it only makes sense. Uh, there, there's no reason why being more educated, if you still consider yourself a Christian, should make you any less religious. So where does the change come from, 
if we say, okay, being more educated means you are somewhat less likely to say you believe in God, you are significantly less likely to say religion is important in your life, where are these changes coming from, if not from Christians? Well, they're coming from others. They're not coming from Muslims either. Okay, if we look at Muslims, Pew has found that the level of religious adherence, people saying they believe in God, saying they pray, saying they attend worship services, all of that remains basically unchanged, no matter how educated you are as a Muslim. The point, the difference is maybe one or two percentage points at most. It's not coming from Christians, it's not coming from Muslims. Where is the difference? It's among Jews and among the nuns the people who say they are not affiliated with any particular religion. So none is a larger umbrella group that includes atheists and agnostics, but also many others, is, and that today is not mainly atheists and agnostics. It's actually the majority are people who do profess some sort of religious belief, but they are not specifically affiliated with any religious group. They're, you might say, floaters. Okay, so this is nuns, N-O-N-E, not nuns, N-U-N. And, you know, obviously there's a pun that I'm using in, in this lecture. So if we look at Jews first, there are differences among Jews with education. The more highly educated you are, the less likely you are to say, I believe in God, I attend worship services or belong to a synagogue, I consider myself religious. There are real differences there, significant and they continue the higher level of education you attain. Why does this happen? Well, this is partly due to the Orthodox Jews. So Orthodox Jews much less frequently attend colleges and universities. Their education is largely in Jewish religious institutions. They might go to, in some cases, yeshiva. They might go to a Jewish or non-Jewish university, but most do not. So when we put them into these surveys about level of education, they are lower in that scale than other Jews who tend to be very highly educated. A large majority attend college, and even more than half in some surveys have postgraduate degrees. So they're a highly, highly educated population. And if you factor this out and you say, okay, well, let's consider the Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews separately, there is still some difference. It's not as dramatic, but there is still some difference. If you are a non-Orthodox Jew, still, if you attend college, you are slightly less likely to say, I'm religious, I believe in God, and so forth. But it's not as dramatic a difference. So if we bracket Jews and say, well, Jews are a specific small minority that tends to have very high levels of education, and they show a different pattern from Christians, the main group that's left is the nuns, okay? The, the people who don't identify themselves with any one specific group. Who are the nuns and what's going on with them? Well, in recent surveys, they do seem to be a significantly growing group. And in the Pew survey from last year, they amounted to about 15% of the population. So that's definitely a bigger fraction than anyone found in any similar earlier survey. Although, again, there's not a lot of good, reliable data on this sort of question. They tend largely to be less educated. 
So it's not a big difference, but about 17% of people who are not college educated call themselves none, okay, no religion, and about 14% of the college educated. So it's slightly more common among non-college educated people. The nuns tend to be younger, especially commonly under 30. They tend to be lower income, which of course is common among younger people across the board. They tend to be unmarried and to have never been married, and they mostly don't have children. So demographically, the nuns are not who you might initially guess. They're not middle-aged, highly educated professionals. They're not scientists or academics. They tend to be poorer, younger, less educated people. And why are so many of these younger people becoming nuns? Well, as I'll describe in a moment, it's not so much because they have rejected religious beliefs or practices entirely. Many of them still do profess some sort of belief in God and some sort of importance for religion in their lives, even if they're not affiliated with a group. Rather, I would argue that they are people who are growing up and trying to make their way and trying to survive in a very difficult economic environment where it's extremely hard just to get yourself food and housing, much less try to raise a family. They're largely in straightened circumstances, which is especially true if you don't have a college degree. And they have lost faith in institutions across the board. There's tremendous disenchantment with politics. Very few of them affiliate with a political party. They're disenchanted with the court system, the media, police, higher education, the banking system. And their disenchantment with religion falls into this basic pattern. They have lost confidence in traditional religious institutions and largely don't want to affiliate with one. But this doesn't mean that they are non-religious in these other senses of the word that we've been talking about. About 15% of the college-educated nuns and about 36%, more than a third, of non-college-educated nuns say that they believe in God with absolute certainty. So we are not talking about atheists and not even agnostics in this case. We're talking about a significant fraction, around a quarter or so, of people who say they don't belong to any religious institution or group, say that they believe in God with absolute certainty. Significant fractions of them also pray regularly, many read scripture, and a significant portion say that religion is very important in their lives. So the nuns, again, are not who we think they are. They're not people who have rejected belief in God or, say, the supernatural or in prayer. They're people who simply can't see themselves belonging to a religious institution or, for whatever reason, don't have a religious institution that they want to affiliate with in the place where they live. You might have to move to a city for a certain job. You might have to move to some other place in the country. And you've disassociated with institutions and have not rejoined. This is very common among younger people today. And all kinds of institutions, private clubs, fraternal societies like the Freemasons and Hadassah, the Elks, have all declined and really struggled to bring in people in the younger generation. As I said, political parties, unions, 
all of them are really having a hard time pulling in younger people who have been dislocated, who have had to move, who don't have a clear community to belong to, who often turn to the internet for social networks and association, and who are really disenchanted with institutions. And this, I think, is the root of the phrase that we often hear, uh, among, especially among younger people, I am spiritual but not religious. I'm always very confused by what that means. You know, to me, it sounds like such a fine hair-splitting distinction. What does it mean to be spiritual but not religious? Does that mean you believe in God or you don't? Does that mean you believe in an immortal soul or you don't? Does it mean you think you're Christian or, or not Christian or you're something else? You know, it's, it's very confusing. It always strikes me as sort of like saying, I want my wallpaper to be purple but not violet. So... When people say I'm spiritual but not religious, I think what they often mean, and maybe even in most cases what they mean is, I still value or hold on to certain things I associate with religion, like prayer, like belief in a soul or a spirit, like belief in a god or gods, but I don't want to belong to a group with set practices and doctrines. So basically, this idea that education leads people to become less religious is really not so much the case when we look at it closely. It depends on exactly how you define and delimit what you consider to be religion or religious, but really however you define it, it's a pretty weak case. And hence, this body of evidence does not tend to support the idea that modernity leads individual people to become less religious. So let's say we take Charles Taylor's point number two and set it aside, that it, this is not really a strong case. Well, let's look at number three, his secularization number three, the one that Taylor really argues for and believes is real and valid, which is the idea that now people's religious views are relative and changeable, and that it is no longer possible to simply adhere to religious views naively because they're taken for granted in society in the way that was possible in the past. Well, this too has some roots in, in Weber. Okay, the Weber says that multiplicity and variety have exploded across the religious and ideological scene. Arbitrary taste now takes over in governing people's values and beliefs. This is similar, of course, to what Peter Berger and others call the pluralism of the modern world. Well, this seems to be in line with what we already talked about, that there has been a rise in people calling themselves nuns or unaffiliated. It's now at least 15% of the population. And indeed, there's plenty of evidence for the new sort of variety and experimentation in religious views that Taylor sees as part of the modern world. There are all kinds of new religious beliefs, intercombining of different beliefs and practices, experimentation. There have been new groups putting forward new doctrines that have stumbled over one another in reaching out for public adherence. Starting from the 1960s, the Nation of Islam, the neo-pagan movement or Wicca, smaller spiritualist groups like the MSIA, Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness, and other movements, uh, the Church of Scientology, which maybe I'll talk about another time. There's also been a great growth in missionism. So not only 
are Western missionaries spreading out through the world and promoting and spreading Christianity in places like China and Africa, which they've been doing for hundreds of years now. But now there's also a reverse missionism with all kinds of new groups and organizations bringing particularly Asian religious ideas into the West where they're gaining growing audiences. So groups like the Vedanta Society, which began more than 100 years ago, then uh, Krishna Consciousness, uh, Soka Gakkai, a Buddhist movement that can claim one member of Congress, Hank Johnson, as the first uh, Buddhist in Congress, and all kinds of Asian practices and disciplines that have their roots in spiritual contexts, such as feng shui, acupuncture, and especially yoga which began as a Hindu devotional discipline, have really taken on the West. And there have been difficult political and legal cases, like, for example, a few years ago, a mother of a public school student objecting to her child's elementary school holding yoga classes because, in her view, that was a religious practice and religious teaching, and so it violated separation of church and state. Now, we could say, oh, well, but, you know, yoga isn't really religion because you can take all the spiritual stuff out of it. You can take the stuff about the soul or gods out of it and just do it as an exercise. Well, okay, I guess you could do that, but what about holding a Catholic mass and just deleting out the lines that refer to God? Would that therefore not be religion because you took the God phrases out of it? You know, by the same token, is yoga no longer religious if you're not saying the wrong words while doing it? Uh, this gets down to this impossible question, which I've talked about several times before, of it's impossible to draw a clear line and say what's religion and what's not. It's really arbitrary judgment what you consider to be religion or not religion. But anyway, all sorts of ideas have, have made their way into the West, and for many people have either taken the place or taken up an important position alongside inherited religious ideas. The phenomenon of the Jew-boo is now fairly common, okay? Jews who still consider themselves Jews but also practice Buddhism and for all intents and purposes are, are Buddhists. I know several in my own life. One of them uh, is a friend who lives and works in Japan, is a practicing Buddhist. Another is a close friend of my mother. They both call themselves, uh, facetiously call themselves Jubus, although they are fairly uh, serious about their Buddhism. Nonetheless, when the two of them happened to meet at my parents' house, my friend said, it's so nice to sometimes meet another Jew because he hasn't been around other Jews for a long time living in Japan. And he identified with this friend of my mother's as a fellow Jew with a similar worldview and similar habits. And they also both happen to be Buddhist. And it's impossible to go up to someone like this and say, what is your religion? And expect a clear answer. Just like I described before with Rima Faki from Lebanon, who grew up observing both Easter and Ramadan. Right? There's no necessary way to draw some line and say this person has a religion and it's either this or that. So Jubus, you might say, are kind of unwitting participants in this new kind of modern pluralism that these philosophers like Taylor and Berger are talking about. 
Still, an important element of Taylor's argument is the idea that things weren't this way before, that there was some time in the past, presumably the late Middle Ages, when there wasn't this sort of pluralism, and when, in Taylor's view, people simply had to take certain beliefs like God totally for granted. They couldn't reasonably be challenged because there simply wasn't any other way of viewing things. So it used to be an absolute given. It used to be part of the background of accepted beliefs and assumptions about the world. Now it's up for debate. Is this true? Well, I would argue that Taylor is wrong. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I read this in Charles Taylor is my experience researching Colonial Newport, which was a large town in the colony of Rhode Island. And you might remember I've mentioned Rhode Island before. It was initially founded by Roger Williams and then by Anne Hutchinson and others who migrated out of Massachusetts and who set up a colony where there would be no public or legal enforcement of religious doctrine as they understood it at that time. So that meant no Sabbath laws, no liquor laws, no laws about witchcraft, and people would be free to adhere to or not adhere to whatever religious beliefs they wanted. Well, in Newport, there was a great multiplicity of churches, of different denominations with different teachings. There was a large Anglican church. There were two congregational churches, several Baptist churches. There was a large Society of Friends, or Quakers. There was a Jewish synagogue. And many people affiliated with one church or another, and some of them also floated around and might show up and participate in different churches. You might show up in different churches from one week to another, from one year to another. You might even show up at the Seventh-day Baptist church, which worshipped on Saturday, and then go to another church the next day and just try them all out and never really necessarily commit to one or another. This was not unusual. And even beyond that, there was a large population of what people at the time called Nothingarians, people who didn't affiliate with any church and rarely or never attended any church services at all. So there are many references to these Nothingarians. It's difficult to quantify how many of them there were and exactly who they were or what they thought. It's fairly mysterious because they're the people who didn't declare their beliefs. But the minister, Ezra Stiles, who was a congregational minister and is sort of the great chronicler of colonial Newport society, he made counts of who showed up at different churches and how many they could fit when they were full. And he estimated that around 42% of the population of Newport was Nothingarian. So not only were there people who chose not to affiliate with any religion, much like the nuns of today, but that block of society, if Stiles is correct, massively outstripped the number of nuns in American society today. So as of when he made this estimate, which is in 1770, there is some reason to believe that even more people chose to be unaffiliated or floated around from one religious group to another than today. Now, that's 1770, and you might say that's not 
what Charles Taylor is talking about. He's saying there was some earlier world during the era of the Reformation or the Renaissance or even further back in the Middle Ages where there couldn't have been such a thing as Nothingarians or they must have been minuscule, rare exceptions. Well, is this true? Again, it's very hard to say. If we go back to the Middle Ages, which clearly is the time period that Taylor most of all has in mind when he talks about naive religious belief or religion being completely integrated into the basic assumptions about the world. If we go back to the Middle Ages, there were no Pew or Gallup polls. There wasn't even an Ezra Stiles pointing out how many people didn't attend church. Rather, we have very limited evidence. We have small numbers of written documents and we have some archaeological remains about everyday life and about church life. And these also tend to suggest that it was not uncommon for people to express religious skepticism, let's say, even sometimes quite openly. For example, a famous book of jokes called the Facetiae that was published in Italy in 1470 includes all kinds of jokes about all sorts of people, you know, professions, royals, nobles, peasants, and sometimes about the church. And one of these jokes goes like this. One of our fellow citizens, a very witty man, was laboring under a painful and lengthy illness, and he was attended by a friar who came to comfort him, and among other words of solace, told him that God thus especially chastens those he loves and inflicts his visitations upon them. No wonder, then, retorted the sick man, that God has so few friends. If that is the way he favors them, he ought to have even fewer. So, this view that this man is putting forward in this joke, it doesn't necessarily seem to amount to actual unbelief. He's definitely mocking what this friar is saying to him. And arguably, he's at least in a kind of indirect, ironic way, calling into question the very existence of God. You know, is, is there a God? And if so, why would he behave in this way towards people? This kind of cheeky questioning or even mocking of religious belief is pretty widespread in our surviving records of the Middle Ages and of later eras. What we don't see very much is people openly and avowedly arguing that there is no God. That doesn't come up until much later, until the 1700s, when we get people like the Baron de Holbach openly advocating for atheism. In the intervening years between, say, 1500 and 1700, we don't have a lot of people openly saying they're atheist and there is no God, but we have a lot of implications, a lot of indirect indications that some people rejected these ideas. We have the example, for one thing, of Minocchio, an obscure miller from a small village in northeastern Italy, who was repeatedly arrested and questioned by the Inquisition for speaking against ideas like the notion that God created the world, who openly rejected the divinity of Christ and argued that Jesus was simply an ordinary man born of Mary and Joseph, 
who rejected the divinity of the scriptures and argued that the scriptures were just ordinary books written by monks and priests. And he was repeatedly questioned for these views in the 1580s and 90s until finally, after several trials, he was condemned and executed in 1599. So Minocchio was particularly outspoken and was willing to risk very likely death for propounding these views. But we don't know how unusual his ideas were and how often others might have discussed similar notions and questioned core doctrines of the Christian faith in a more discreet way and avoided being taken up by the Inquisition. If we go just a few years later, to Descartes. Descartes, in his Meditations, which were published in 1641, he begins with a dedicatory letter where he asks for the approval and endorsement of the Sorbonne, as the University of Paris was commonly called by that time. And in this dedicatory letter, he makes many references to so-called infidels or unbelievers. And this letter was originally published in Latin, and in Latin, infidel doesn't necessarily have these connotations we have of sort of heathen or, you know, person who must be executed, but it basically just means non-believer, person without faith. And he repeatedly says that these unnamed infidels or unbelievers deny the existence of God, deny the existence of a soul, or even if they do accept a soul, in some sense, they deny that the soul is immortal and assert that it simply dies when the body dies. So many people, of course, have discussed and analyzed Descartes' meditations as a philosophical text. You know, what were the precise arguments he was trying to make? And how do they fit into the philosophical debates of the 17th century? But I'm not aware of anyone looking at this letter historically as a piece of historical evidence and asking, who are these infidels and unbelievers that Descartes seems to believe are quite numerous and whom he openly assumes that the faculty of the University of Paris will be familiar with and will be concerned about their arguments? Why does Descartes address them? And is this letter evidence that such people existed and spoke of their views fairly openly? So let me read you a few brief quotes from this letter by Descartes. He says, quote, I am aware that most of the irreligious deny the existence of God and the distinctness of the human soul from the body for no other reason than because these points, as they allege, have never as yet been demonstrated. So according to Descartes, these people are not heathens. He's not talking about Muslims or Jews. He's talking about people who aren't persuaded by the evidence that there is a God. He goes on, and as regards the soul, though many, in his words, many have judged that its nature could not be easily discovered, and some have even ventured to say that human reason led to the conclusion that it perished with the body, and that the contrary opinion should be held through faith alone, and so on. So here he seems to be describing people who, regardless of their view of God, they don't believe in the immortality of the soul. Now, does this mean that therefore they are infidels or irreligious? In this particular passage, he doesn't use those terms. 
He just says there are those who deny an immortal soul. And in, in this sense, these people he's referring to might be similar to other religious practitioners like the Sadducees who governed the ancient Jewish temple, who also denied an immortal soul and believed that religion was entirely a matter of mortal life on earth. He goes on to question how one should refute these ideas of these modern-day atheists, as we would label them, or skeptics, as you might call them more broadly. Well, Descartes argues that questions about God and the soul ought to be submitted to philosophy in order to refute these infidels. And he says, quote, I have always been of the opinion that the two questions respecting God and the soul were the chief of those that ought to be determined by help of philosophy rather than of theology. For although to us, the faithful, it be sufficient to hold as matters of faith that the human soul does not perish with the body and that God exists, it yet assuredly seems impossible ever to persuade infidels of the reality of any religion or almost even any moral virtue, unless, first of all, those two things be proved to them by natural reason. So Descartes here is arguably illustrating precisely the sort of phenomenon that these scholars like Brad Gregory and Charles Taylor were talking about, that in this splintered environment after the Reformation, it became impossible to simply rely on shared known theological beliefs. Rather, these beliefs were disputed, they were questioned, and hence, as I referred to in my lecture about the general crisis of the 17th century, people had to search for alternative sources of authority to settle these questions. They could turn, for one thing, to the Bible. Right? The 17th century was the biblical century, and you could look to the Bible and the scriptures as the ultimate measuring rod for what is good, true doctrine. But Descartes here is going a step further, and he says scripture is not enough because the infidels don't believe in scripture. And he further warns against a circular argument that relies on the Bible as proof. He says, quote, although it is quite true that the existence of God is to be believed since it is taught in the sacred scriptures, and that, on the other hand, the sacred scriptures are to be believed because they come from God, nevertheless, this, this cannot be submitted to infidels who would consider that the reasoning proceeded in a circle. It's circular. Believe in God because the scriptures say so. Believe in the scriptures because they come from God. So here Descartes is saying, Reference to the Bible is not enough. We have to use natural reason and philosophy to prove our theological points. And in this way, he's taking the debate further. He's saying not only do specific theological disputes between schools of Christian thought have to be settled, but Christianity has to be proved and defended against unbelief, against skepticism or atheism as we might call it. So it seems, if we look at this as a historical document, it seems as if the process, the implications of this process are working themselves out. Once core ideas and teachings of Christianity are up for debate, then you have to formulate some sort of non-sectarian philosophy that you think can demonstrate 
your doctrines. And you have to take not only other religious views, but you have to take non-religious views seriously. You have to contend with anti-religious arguments. And once this is allowed, then you might say it ends up where we are now, where being religious or not religious is a matter of personal, almost arbitrary choice, right? So Descartes' arguments didn't ultimately work <laughs> in, their, in their attempted goal of convincing unbelievers to believe in Christianity. They were unsuccessful, and instead we now have this contentious marketplace of religious and non-religious ideas. Okay, so what do we conclude then about this notion that today is pluralistic and the past was not? Well, it's not quite true. Pluralism, fragmentation, relativity of different religious ideas, all of these things may have increased and become more pervasive, but they're not entirely new. There was always questioning, there was always contention going back at least to the 16th century, if not even earlier, I think, into the Middle Ages. There were different schools of thought, and there was the possibility of entertaining totally non-religious views of the world. And indeed, I would say, if we look at the medieval philosophers, we have to ask, why were they so keen on providing proofs of the existence of God? Why did St. Anselm and Thomas Aquinas put so much work into these abstruse, complicated, logical proofs of God. It's because they knew that those ideas, even then, were subject to question and to doubt, and that some people did doubt them. So basically, I would say Taylor is wrong. It is not true that skeptical or atheist views were inconceivable, in his words, in these earlier eras. Rather, they were illegal. People didn't put these ideas forward publicly and openly very often, and they very rarely committed them to paper because it was dangerous, because you could then be either socially ostracized or even face legal persecution by the Inquisition and other institutions. So they were illegal views, and they were kept mostly under wraps, but they were not inconceivable. And the limited evidence we have says that people did question God, immortality of the soul, miracles, and so on. Okay, so let's go back now and end with the first point. So what was the first notion or definition of secularism that Charles Taylor put forward? It was the idea that public and social life have been drained of religion, that there's now a vast sphere of life where religion is not referred to and where it holds no sway. So this is a point that Charles Taylor doesn't really argue for. Rather, he more or less takes it for granted that obviously the world has become secular because we no longer refer to God when we go to our workplace. We no longer refer to the saints when we undertake commerce or exploration. Uh, we have this vast world of work, entertainment, science, government, politics, that seem to be secularized. Well, is this true? Well, it's undeniable, of course, that things like the United States laws and constitution are secular and do not make any reference to religious belief. 
However, at the same time, there is quite a lot of God talk in American politics. If you listen to politicians, if you go to political rallies, even if you just go to a sports game, you're likely to have to stand during God Bless America. There's plenty of religious ideas and imagery in our public life. It's just very strictly delimited when they're supposed to appear and in what form. And there are certain notions and practices that are kept out. For example, if you go to a sports game, you might hear lots of references to God, but you're not going to see a Eucharistic Mass and take the communion. That's something that's done in churches or at religious occasions. It's been segregated out of public life and the public sphere. So in this very limited way, there are specific actions and specific doctrines that are not supposed to be seen or heard in the public square. You can talk about God, but you're not supposed to talk about, say, the Trinity. So we can say in that sense public life has secularized, but really this statement is a tautology. Of course it's true that public life has been secularized, because that's the whole point of the whole idea of secularism. So we could say religion has been taken out of the public square, but that is a tautology because the very category of religion was created and shaped in order to group together those specific ideas and practices that people thought shouldn't be in the public square. So those specific doctrines like, for example, transubstantiation, that were matters of dispute and division in the Christian world or the Western Christian world in the early modern era, those are the things that people labeled as religion because they thought they couldn't be resolved. They were leading to intractable conflict, and hence they should be relegated into the private world. Okay, so saying religion isn't seen in public life is, it's circular. It's like saying crimes are illegal. Yeah, crime means an illegal act. Religion means specific views and practices that we don't think should be part of public life. Now, to put a fine point on this, I also did research on Freemasonry. That's a subject that I've researched and written about and that I'll probably talk about more later. If you look at Freemasonry, people sometimes debate, is it religious or not? And they debate, is it a religion or not? Is Freemasonry a religion? And Freemasons themselves tend to say no. And indeed, if you look at important shaping documents of Freemasonry, like Anderson's Constitutions from 1723, you'll see that they say Masons should not discuss two things in the Lodge. They should not talk about politics or religion. And this is probably where this common American adage comes from, that, you know, in social gatherings, don't talk about politics or religion, because they're divisive, right? That's the reason why. And it seems this is why the Freemasons had this dictate. They didn't want these divisive topics to intrude into the harmony and solidarity of the Masonic Lodge. However, if you look at Masonic practices, their rituals, their prayers, their songs, there's constant reference to God. There's constant reference to the Old Testament and King Solomon. They teach that they were founded by the builders who built Solomon's temple. They perform elaborate initiation rituals that involve references to the Old Testament, that involve swearing oaths on holy books, usually the Bible. 
and sometimes invokes saints, St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist. And indeed, the one requirement, the one absolute requirement across the board for most Masonic lodges in the world is that you have to affirm belief in a supreme being. You might be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or something else, but you have to say you believe in a supreme being. So how is it that the Masonic constitutions could say, don't talk about religion? Well, the reason is because when they used that word in the early 1700s, when these constitutions were written, they meant by religion the specific topics and questions that people disagreed about. Things like the doctrine of the Trinity and apostolic succession or papal authority. These things that people had been fighting religious wars over since the outbreak of the Reformation. Those are the things that they bracketed and put under this headline, religion. When it came to their rituals and their teachings about Solomon's temple, they didn't even refer to those things as religion, right? So the category of religion changes and it broadens to include things that people disagree about and that they think are unresolvable, subjective, and that they want to put aside and segregate out of certain environments. Those are the things they label as religion. This is why today people might say, oh, well, you know, going to church, that's religion, but yoga isn't. Because when we practice yoga, we've deleted out the things people might disagree about. So we say it's not religion, and hence we can say it's secular. And we put in, we've created a new grab bag category of spirituality which is these sort of squishy, crunchy things that don't involve contentious subjects. So it's okay to be spiritual without being religious. Likewise, saying religion causes conflict or religion is the root of conflicts is also redundant. Of course, religion is the cause of conflict. We created the category in order to group together things that lead to conflicts that we want to segregate and suppress as much as possible. So all of these things, like saying religion is a matter of contention, religion has been taken out of public life, all of these statements are like saying water is wet. You know, it's, it's, it's just statements of the definition. And in this way, again, saying the current age is secular in a way that previous ages were not is basically meaningless. It's an empty circular statement. You're just saying we have changed what we consider to be proper or improper in certain social settings based on the political and social needs of the time. So in sum, what I'm trying to say is that secularization is a myth. And that doesn't mean it's wrong in all senses of the word that people might associate with it. It just means that it's a story that is built out of certain conceptual categories that have arbitrarily, historically accidental lines and boundaries between them. Religion, not religion. Spiritual, not spiritual. Natural versus supernatural. All of these are, are arbitrary, vague categories that we have cooked up and revised and retreaded as we've needed to through the years in order to manage social and political problems. And so the secularization myth, in a sense, is politically useful. It's useful to people who want to discourage religion, who want to argue that it's an artifact of the past. It also can be politically useful to people who want to promote religion and who hence condemn 
what they see as the drawbacks, the soullessness, the empty materialistic arbitrariness of modern life and want to condemn that by saying that secularism is empty, it's lacking in spirituality, it's lacking in meaning. And all of these things can be true. Again, just like saying the Western Hemisphere speaks more Spanish where the Eastern Hemisphere speaks more Mandarin. That's definitely true. But it doesn't mean that there's some sort of essential difference written into being in the Western Hemisphere versus being in the Eastern Hemisphere. It's just the way that events and conditions have shaken out over time. And likewise, these differences between a supposedly more religious past and a supposedly more secular present, which is, it's an arbitrary myth, it's an arbitrary set of terms, and when we test it against the evidence, it turns out I would say not to be well supported by evidence, but in many levels and in many senses is actually false. So thank you so much for listening to this lecture. Uh, I initially thought it would just be a short comment on the idea of secularization, but I found that there was actually a lot to say. So I hope you enjoyed it and tell others about it, repost. And I encourage you again to go to my Patreon page and support this podcast in any way you can, even if it's just a dollar, and you will get patron-only posts right away or exclusively if they remain as patron-only.